Turn in your Bibles, please, to 1 Samuel 28. 1 Samuel chapter 28. First Samuel 28 this morning. If you're our guest today, uh, we've been uh, studying through this book, First Samuel, on and off for almost the last year. And uh, I think I have three more sermons from this book before we complete it, uh, including today's. Uh, but this is just uh, the next chapter in this study that follows the life of Israel's first king, King Saul, and the rise of Israel's next king, King David. 1 Samuel 28, uh, we are focused on King Saul. Let's go ahead and begin reading in verse 3. 1 Samuel 28, verse 3. Now, Samuel had died. And all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid. And his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, behold, there is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself. And put on other garments, and went he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night. And he said, Divine for me by a spirit, and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying, laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord. As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? He said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, what is his appearance? And she said, an old man is coming up and he's wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I'm in great distress. For the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? 
The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow, you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. Then Saul fell at once full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I've taken my life in my hand and have listened to what you have said to me. Now, therefore, you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and, and, and eat that you may have strength when you go on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants together with the woman urged him and he listened to their words. So he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fattened calf in the house and she quickly killed it and she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread from it and she put it before Saul and his servants and they ate. Then they rose and went away that night. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, you are holy, holy, holy. There is no one like you. None so righteous, none so holy as you are, Father. None so pure, none so separate from unrighteousness and injustice. Everything you do, everything you think, everything you say is thoroughly right and good. How can we stand before you? How can we live in your presence? Father, we're not anywhere close to pure in and of ourselves. We're not holy. We're not righteous in and of ourselves. We, our, our hands have been covered in blood, the blood of hatred, of violence, of rebellion. And yet here we stand, here we sit this morning, breathing your air on your earth. And so, Lord, we're reminded that you are a merciful God, a God gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love who shows mercy to a thousand generations. And so here we are. We have one more chance, yet again, to hear your word. And even though we don't deserve to know you or be close to you, you invite us in to see what you're like, and to actually become right with you through the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, as we look at this text, and, and as sobering as it is, I, I pray that you would draw our attention to your holiness, your goodness, and our need to be broken before you. And I pray that you would, by your Spirit, bring that about. Do your what, uh, work in our hearts today. Have your way with us, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1606, just five years before the completion of King James' authorized version of the Bible in the English language, 
A gifted playwright named William Shakespeare introduced what would become one of his most famous plays into the world, the tragedy of a fictional Scottish nobleman by the name of Macbeth. Over the course of five acts, Macbeth rapidly spirals to his own doom. He begins a victorious warrior with bright prospects. He's named Thane of Cawdor uh, by his liege lord, King Duncan. Basically, he's the second in command. But his pride, fanned into flame by his murderous wife, gets the better of him. In a fit of foolish ambition, he murders the king, blames the king's sons, and takes his place on the throne. But like happens in the case of many who possess power or position, the fear of losing that power becomes all-consuming. And that's what happens in the life of Macbeth. He says to himself, to be thus, that is to be the king, is nothing but to be safely thus. And even that goal proves to be impossible to reach because each attempt to stamp out all the opposition uh, creates more distrust and more powerful enemies until the kingdom and Macbeth himself are completely destroyed. In Shakespeare's day, it would not have been difficult to find parallels between the story of Macbeth and the political landscape of the early modern period. In fact, many have argued that Shakespeare was writing to catch the eye of King James I, uh, James was from Scotland, and he had uh, been he had ascended to the throne of England not by uh, right of birth, but through the favor of his predecessor, Queen Elizabeth. But it's undeniable that Shakespeare had also been reading his Bible. Scholars have long observed the similarities between the murderous Macbeth and the maniacal first king of the nation of Israel. King Saul. Both men had received their place of power and position uh, from the generosity of their Lord. Both destroyed their integrity when they refused to wait on the timing of their Lord. Both men tried unsuccessfully to murder their rivals. Both consorted with occult powers. Both met a bloody, untimely, and shameful end. And we've come to that moment in the book of 1 Samuel, a book we began to study almost a year ago, in which Saul is about to reap what he has been sowing for years. Make no mistake, like Macbeth, the story of Saul is a tragedy, an exposition of a wasted and wicked life, a cautionary tale, a warning to anybody who would refuse to live in the fear of God. But unlike Macbeth, folks, this is not fiction. It's fact, chilling though it may be. Saul begins so well, but he throws it all the way, all the way in the name of his own pride and his desire to keep his position. And when he finds himself in a place of desperation, a place of divine silence, when the heavens are closed to him, when God is far from him, instead of breaking down, instead of being broken before the throne of God, Saul once again takes matters into his own hands and he visits a medium. He descends into devilry. And so we should not be surprised when he finds himself in more or less a living hell. Folks, part of my job 
is to tell you that if this can happen in the life of King Saul, then it can happen in the life of people like you and me. This, by the way, this isn't going to be a sermon that makes everybody feel good. I'm sorry. And I know it's a beautiful morning, like the sun's shining and we're singing all these songs together and everybody's saying, hi, how are you? How was your holiday? And I don't like to preach a sermon that's harsh or or hard to hear. But I, I do it because we may need to wake up. We may need a warning. I'd rather tell you the truth that you don't want to hear because God might use it in your life. So what I want to do today is consider the sweep of Saul's career with an emphasis on what this particular chapter reveals at the end of his life. And in order to do that, we're going to take three movements. I'll give give those movements to you now at the beginning, and then we'll go through them one by one. Here they are. A favorable start, a fearsome silence, and a fatal sentence. A favorable start, a fearsome silence, and a fatal sentence. So let's begin by considering a favorable start. What do we mean by that, a favorable start? Well, what I mean to say is that Saul started off so well, or so it seemed. Think back over the course of his life. King Saul certainly looked good, remember? He was head and shoulders above all the rest of the people. When they saw him, they thought, that's the guy, that's the person that needs to lead us into battle. He was the kind of man you'd pick out of a crowd to serve as an ancient Near Eastern king, the kind of person you'd choose to go out before your army to fight your battles for you. Saul looked good. Saul had a great family. He didn't come from an important family, at least at first, but he did come from a hardworking and well-off family. His father was a righteous man. His son, Jonathan, was a, an all-star sort of guy, the kind of young man that would make any dad proud. You remember what Jonathan did earlier in his military career? He and his armor bearer single-handedly, just these two guys, attack the garrison of the Philistines when nobody else is willing to do anything, and they save Israel, and they turn the tide of the battle. I mean, Saul had a great family. Saul had a godly mentor. Samuel the prophet was with him every step of the way, a man who, from the time of his youth, had heard the voice of God and had walked in holiness, a man who had exercised leadership for decades, and there he is, standing right beside King Saul for many, many years. Saul had a wonderful mentor. He did many things in his zeal for God, like many good things. That's right, Saul was so zealous early in his career that he carried out courageous exploits on behalf of the people of God. He routed the enemy, he protected the faithful, and he risked his life in order to lead the people of God with justice. Saul was willing at times to admit that he had been wrong. Think back over the course of his career in the book of 1 Samuel. There were many times Samuel confronts him, and even though he makes excuses at first, Uh, Saul eventually admits that he had been wrong. When he goes after David and he tries to kill him in the wilderness and David confronts him, Saul eventually admits, I was wrong. And he does so twice. And of course, more important than any of those things, Saul started out with the blessing of God himself. It was God who sent Saul to Samuel's doorstep early on in the book, right? It was God the Holy Spirit who fell powerfully upon Saul, causing him to prophesy. It was God who gave Saul success on the field of battle. Think about this, folks. Just in in the storyline of Scripture, 
Saul was God's anointed king over his blessed people. God had promised, I'm going to bless you, all of Abraham's children, all of the people of Israel, and I'm going to bless those who bless you, and I'm going to curse those who curse you. Like Saul lived under that umbrella of God's blessing. You say, okay, sure, but what's your point? My point is this. Saul's auspicious beginning with all of its divinely appointed advantages did not rescue him from his eventual doom. Let me say that again. Saul's favorable start did not save him from his eventual demise. In spite of everything he had going for him, here he is, he's searching for a word from God in the whisperings of a medium. You say, well, okay, that was Old Testament times, but that's not going to happen today. No, folks, listen, it can happen today. Paul talks about it in his letters. One of his best friends, his most anointed co-laborers, a man by the name of Demas, forsook the work of Christ because he was in love with the world. John talks about it. He warns us about it in 1 John. He talks about many antichrists. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. Many antichrists. He says, Satan's sleeper agents, Judas's, who may not even realize that their faith is not real. They've deceived themselves. And folks, they are in the midst of believers all around the world. These things happen even today. When I was growing up in a conservative, independent Baptist setting, I uh, remember a couple of my friends passing around a book that they were reading called I Kissed Dating Goodbye. How many of you read that book? I never read it because I wasn't interested in doing that. <laughs> but some of my friends uh, read that book. It had a significant impact on young people around the country. And it was written by a gifted young man who appeared to love God and desire a pure life. His name was Joshua Harris. Harris rose to prominence in certain circles. He started a nationally known conference for young adults. He became the pastor of a megachurch, a very prominent church in the D.C. area. He seemed to have an anointing from the Lord. I mean, I can't think of anybody who had as much influence at that age as Joshua Harris. And yet after a short time, just a few years in that position, he resigned from his church. He said, I need to go to seminary. And everybody thought, hey, that's great. He's got the humility to go back and get some training. It was big news at the time, but people were glad for his uh, desire to grow. And, and then a few years later, he and his wife announced that they were getting a divorce. Tragic, but it does happen. Not necessarily the end of his life or his ministry. But then just after... Uh, after just a few days, he clarified on social media, hey, I'm no longer a Christian. I don't believe the gospel anymore. Now, <laughs> that's a very public example of a phenomenon I've seen repeated multiple times. Many of the men and women that Mandy and I went to college with, I went to Bible college, uh, sat there taking Bible classes and ministry classes alongside men who, who seem to have a zeal for God and a love for the Lord, and now they just don't want it at all. They live in settled opposition to the gospel. They mock the teachings of Jesus and the apostles every chance they get. You say, why are you dwelling on this? Why would you spend so much time talking about this on a Sunday morning? It's because so often religious people assume 
that a favorable start translates into a final salvation. We even teach this inadvertently. We say, hey, did you pray the sinner's prayer and did you mean it? Then you're good. Hang on, not so fast. We have to recognize the reality that we can deceive even ourselves. Scripture talks about this many times. But God is not deceived. God is not mocked. What I'm saying is that each and every one of us has just a short time, one little life. And when it's over, that's it. We stand before the Lord and we give an account. And that reality is much more important than anything else. And when we stand before the Lord on that day and the books are opened, when our lives are examined, there will be many who had a favorable start but do not end up with a blessed end. It's going to happen. We read it earlier in the service. Many will say to me in that day, Jesus says, Lord, Lord, but I'll look at them and I'm going to say, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You might have a wonderful family, and I'm glad, but having a wonderful family does not ensure your salvation. You might look like a good Christian, but looking good does not ensure salvation. You might have great mentors, and that's wonderful. What a blessing they are, but having great mentors does not ensure salvation. You might have gone through times when you admitted that you were a sinner, and you're the kind of person that says, hey, I was wrong. I didn't do the right thing, but there are plenty of people who were willing to admit that they had been wrong who will not stand in the last day. You might even have a zeal for evangelism and for the work of the church, but having a zeal for God, apparently, in in obedience to him, is not going to save you on the last day. You may have enjoyed blessings and even apparent moments of spiritual refreshment and vitality, but the truth is that you may have been deceiving yourself. All these things are great. They're wonderful, but they're not the requirement, folks. They're not the thing that's going to bring you across the finish line and save you in the last day. Many who have had a favorable start do not have a blessed end. Beware of resting on a prior profession when you are lacking in present faith. Beware of relying on the judgment of others when there's only one person's opinion that matters, right? Beware of looking back at the starting line when you're getting closer to the finish line. Saul had a favorable start, but that didn't help him in the end. Consider with me in the second place not only a favorable start, but also a fearsome silence. A fearsome silence. Now, folks, this is a dark chapter, but you have to remember something about Saul. He has been ignoring the voice of God for years, years and years. He has had many chances to be broken about his rebellion. He's had many chances to submit to the will of God. God allowed him to have a lengthy and essentially prosperous reign. He's had so many chances. Even even David spared his life on two different occasions. He has been ignoring God's will for years. All those things should have led him to repentance, but he never turned to God and said, God, you're right. I've been wrong. I submit to you. I accept the discipline that you're bringing in my life. When you told me the kingdom would be torn from me, I could have submitted to that. I could have said, okay, I'll follow David's lead now, and I never did. God, please forgive me. But we never see that happen in the life of King Saul. Saul could have waited on the Lord even in this instance, but he never did because things just weren't bad enough for him to be desperate. He deceived himself into thinking that he had control, that God's word was negotiable, that he had more time, that he could achieve what he wanted to achieve and protect his position and his power. 
that he could turn the tide of history in his favor. And now we come to 1 Samuel 28, and three things take place that disabuse him of the notion that he's got any control at all. First thing that happens is David, because he literally had nowhere else to go, had moved to the Philistines, and the ruler of the Philistines had put him in charge of a city in Philistia. Now, we skipped over that part. It's in the previous chapter. We're going to come back to it next week. But here's what happens. David has nowhere else to go. He recognizes that if he stays in the land of Israel, Saul's just going to keep chasing him. And so he does the only thing he knows to do. He goes over to the enemy. And he stays there for, I'm sure, a few years. And so Saul is, uh, he's, he doesn't have any control over what happens with David. And now David is over this army with chariots and weapons and men. And this must have kept Saul up at night. The second thing that happens is Samuel's dying. We learned that from a previous chapter, but it's important to this story because I, I imagine that while Samuel was alive, it was tempting for Saul to think, hey, I'm close to God just because Samuel's close to God. And uh, he may have imagined that he was uh, good with God as long as he kept Samuel around, but now Samuel's gone and Saul's true status is becoming clearer to him. And then the third thing that happens is Saul's enemy, the Philistines, they, they decide now's the time to deal a body blow to the nation of Israel uh, and totally destroy this nation. Commentator Dale Ralph Davis remarks that when the Philistines descend upon Shunem, this is not a border skirmish. This isn't some fight between garrisons on the border of the land of Israel. It has the makings of a major military maneuver that could literally split Israel in two and cut Saul off from the northern tribes. This is a major, major military issue. And so Saul is exposed. He's alone. He doesn't have his mentor around anymore. His enemy is powerful. He's ruling a city in in the land of Philistia, and he needs a word from God because he needs to know what to do. And so he goes to the priests. Yeah, there were still a few left. Uh, he had had most of them killed. But he goes to the priests that were remaining, and he asks them to consult the Lord using the Urim and the Thummim in order to tell him how to direct his armies. And uh, the, the priests, for whatever reason, they don't receive an answer from the Lord. Perhaps Saul had at one point in time received guidance from the Lord in his dreams. After all, he's God's anointed king, and it wouldn't be that far-fetched for him to uh, receive guidance from the Lord in dreams. But now Saul, every night when he gets sleep, there's nothing but darkness, and the Lord doesn't give him a message even in his dreams. I'm sure there were several prophets living near his home base in Gibeah, but after visiting each one of these individuals, not a single one had a word from God. God is utterly, starkly silent. No guidance, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Now, folks, Saul, early on, he'd begun to ignore the voice of God. Then he spent years believing he didn't need God at all. And now, in his moment of desperation, when he turns his ear toward heaven, there is nothing. God is utterly silent. Now, notice what God's silence reveals in Saul's life. He doesn't hear from from God, so he begins to take matters into his own hands, and he calls his trusted servants, and he says, hey, guys, come on over here. Are there any, any mediums, anyone who is skilled in the dark arts that could get some answers for me? 
that's kind of weird to us, right? Uh, for most of us, anyway. That's strange from our modern materialistic perspective. It wouldn't have been strange back then. But to us, it seems a little far-fetched and even silly. It's kind of like opening up a fortune cookie after finishing your General Tso's chicken. You know, it's sort of like, well, a medium. Yeah, right. That's not real, is it? We don't mind when Ebenezer Scrooge is visited by the ghost of Jacob Marley because we immediately recognize when we're reading or watching that that this is just a movie. It's just a tale. But if a friend tells us about an encounter with the spirit world over lunch, we just smile and nod and we feel sort of uncomfortable, like, I'm not really sure I believe what you're saying. It just doesn't fit into our world system. But that's because our belief structure is informed more by our materialistic world than it is by the world of the Bible. Uh, We have to remember that there is an entire unseen realm that exists parallel to our own. It's a world of power. Angels and demons wrestle and war with one another. They jockey for influence and authority. Uh, It's a world of variety. Reading through all the different passages in the Bible that talk about the unseen realm, there are many different types of beings and creatures that exist in this world. Uh, It's almost a, a menagerie of creatures. It's a world of moral significance Angels and demons are just as accountable to the judge of all the earth as we are. It's a world that is unbound by physical existence, but it is not separate from physical existence. Uh, The spiritual powers of righteousness and evil are very aware. They're very interested in what's taking place in the realm of of humanity. And they can hear the things that we say, and they can look at and see the things that we do, and they're very interested in those things. So is it possible for someone to be a medium, to be a conjurer of spirits? Uh, Sure, some of it's fake. A lot of it, I'm sure, is fake. Some of it seems to be just for fun, but that doesn't mean it isn't real. Uh, There are spirits of various kinds. So think about it this way. Uh, They can't read our thoughts the way God, God knows our thoughts. These spirits, they can't read our thoughts. They can hear the things that we say. They can watch the things that we do. And so, and they're very smart, and they're very opportunistic, and so if someone performs some kind of macabre ritual in an effort to speak to the dead, there just may be a demonic power present who hears that ritual spoken and watches that person act, and they think to themselves, I may take advantage of this situation. I may enter into some sort of an alliance or agreement with this person because I get something out of it. And these alliances can exist between people and these spiritual powers. And those who are skilled at forming and maintaining these alliances, they can teach these things to others and pass them down. So what I'm saying is, this is real. This is a real thing. And if there's one thing that would have been abundantly clear to the nation of Israel, it is that to pursue interactions like this is way outside the bounds of what Scripture allows. Saul recognized this. He, he knew it wasn't, it wasn't right. He had cast all these people out of the nation before. There are a lot of reasons for this. One being, if you try to interact with a demonic power, there's going to be a cost to that. Satan's services are not free. If you want something from a demon, you will have to do something for the demon. 
Uh, but perhaps more important than that even is because this type of interaction is absolutely contrary. It's the opposite of real faith. You cannot act in faith to God and seek the guidance of a demon. We're supposed to wait on God. We're not supposed to seek salvation and guidance in opposition to him. So do you remember what Samuel said? Go back in the book. Remember what Samuel said to Saul early on when God told him, I'm going to tear the kingdom away from you and I'm going to give it to your neighbor, to David. He said, rebellion is as the sin of what? Of witchcraft. Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. And then look at, look at what happens. Saul takes this path of life and by the end of his life, all of his rebellion culminates in this one moment where he engages in witchcraft itself. So what are those two similar things, rebellion and witchcraft, now they're the same thing. So notice how God's silence is like a crucible revealing the true nature of Saul's heart. What does this circumstance reveal? First of all, it reveals that Saul is a hypocrite, right? He had cast all these people out, but now... When he's in need, he wants to consult a medium. Secondly, on a deeper level, it reveals that Saul cares more about his goals than he does his God. Think about what he says to Samuel uh, in this passage. Samuel comes up. The, the woman is shocked, by the way. She's probably not used to actually speaking to the dead. Perhaps she's used to consorting with demons, but uh, she's surprised to see Samuel. Samuel comes up, and, and, and Saul says to Samuel, Hey, I've, I've summoned you so that you could tell me what I should do. Like, even though Samuel is dead, he still thinks he can boss him around. Why, what does that reveal? It reveals that Saul cares more about his goals than he does about his God. At its core, though, the way that Saul acts here reveals a complete and utter lack of faith. You have to understand uh, that if Saul had responded to God's silence differently he would have found himself in a very different situation. He didn't have to go to a medium. He could have fallen on his knees. He could have been broken over his sin. See, it would be a mistake for us to read a passage like this and think that Saul's experience would be different from our experience. Like, just because he's a person that's in the Bible. Sometimes God is going to take each one of us through these seasons of silence. Through these times when it feels like he's not as present as he has been at other times. Like he's going to seem distant and far away. In Saul's case, that experience is directly tied to decisions he had made for years leading up to this moment. But sometimes that's not the case. Sometimes God just allows this in our life because he wants to test us and he wants to show us what the nature of our faith or the lack thereof. And he wants to grow us in our faith. What I'm saying is, that there have been faithful people and unfaithful people who have experienced the silence of God, but how we respond to that silence reveals our heart. Saul's heart shone through in this circumstance. We see Saul, a hypocritical man. He's a pragmatic man who wants to use God rather than a humble man who wants to know God. He's a faithless man who doesn't know how to wait on the Lord. He has to rush ahead and get his answers instead of being patient. But others have had to wait on God too. That experience reveals a different kind of heart in some cases. Think about the Psalms. Think about Psalm 35. How long, O Lord? O Lord, be not silent. O Lord, be not far from me. Why do we have verses like that in the Bible? It's because God is giving us tools to navigate a circumstance 
in which he himself seems distant and aloof so that after we have walked through the valley and the fog begins to lift, we can look back at that season of darkness and God's silence and say, hey, he was there with me the whole time. I just didn't see it at the time. What about you this morning? Have you experienced the silence of God? What do you do in that circumstance? Do you take matters into your own hands? Don't do that. God has been silent. I'm going to search for answers somewhere else. That's what Saul does, and it's going to kill him. What do you do? Let me just, before we move on, let me just encourage you to do three things. Some of you are sitting here, and perhaps even right now, you're feeling like you're going through the valley, you're experiencing the silence of God, you've been reading the Bible, you've been spending time in prayer, you've been going to church, and it just feels like God is distant. What do you do with that? Three things. First of all, be honest. Be honest. Do you really want God? Or do you just want to feel better? Do you just want to know what the next thing is that you're supposed to do? And then when you figure that out, you're going to forget about God again. Be honest. Be honest. Secondly, be broken. Maybe there's a reason God has been silent in your life. Maybe there's something he wants to expose Maybe there's something that he's doing to prune you away from your self-reliance. Maybe he's exposing some self-deceit. Be honest and then be broken before him. Thirdly, be patient. This is so important. Remember what Paul says. Uh, He says, hope that is seen is not hope. What does that mean? It means I can't hope for something that I already have. And what God wants to see in our life is hope and faith. He wants us to grow in our faith. And if God gives us everything that we want and everything that we need right here and right now, and we don't have to wait for it, then we never get the most important thing, which is faith. Peter says that's more precious than gold, to grow in our faith. See, what God wants us to do is he wants to see that faith in him that really is valuable, and he's willing to withhold from us for a time the sense of his presence in order that we might learn to walk by faith and wait on him. I just uh, so many times have that scripture song playing in the back of my mind. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. Do you guys know this one? They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Teach me, Lord, teach me, Lord, to wait. We don't like to wait. Saul didn't want to wait, and that was his problem. He didn't want to wait on the Lord. And what I'm saying is that even though you might relate to Saul in the sense that you're experiencing the silence of God, the perception that he is far from you, your story does not have to be the same as his story. This isn't God pouring out his judgment on you. It may very well be God's merciful means of getting your attention so that you learn to wait and live by faith. This morning, if you're still alive, everybody's still alive this morning? If you're still alive, I'm serious, you're still within the reach of the grace of God. 
There's still time to repent. There's still time to turn back. Over and over again in Scripture, God, when he wants to reveal his essential nature to his people, he reveals himself as God, the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious and abounding in steadfast love. This is what he wants you to know about himself, and this is why from eternity past, God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit planned this great work of salvation. They sent Christ into the world to live for us, to die for our sins, so that we might be rescued from judgment. Saul's story doesn't have to be your story. You may be just as guilty just as stubborn, just as rebellious, but there is still time to bow the knee and call out to Christ by faith and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I don't deserve your love. I don't deserve your patience. I don't deserve your mercy, but I need it. I need you to save me. Please forgive me. Please save me today. We've seen that Saul had a favorable start, but that didn't prevent him from his unenviable end. We've seen that Saul experienced a fearsome silence from God, a silence that revealed a heart of unbelief, even though it could have been an occasion for brokenness and repentance. But thirdly, consider with me a fatal sentence, a fatal sentence. Now think about this. This is ironic. Saul has already taken off his royal robes in order to go to this woman. He disguises himself in the clothing of a commoner, Samuel appears, much to the woman's surprise, dressed in the robe of a prophet. And what he says to Saul is direct, unmistakable, and terrifying. He says, Saul, the Lord is your enemy. Your kingdom is gone. Israel is going to lose tomorrow. You and your sons are going to die. See, folks, what happened in Saul's life is this. Saul's sin started out as a little seed. He just didn't wait on God's timing because he was afraid of the people, but he didn't cast it out. He didn't repent of it. He didn't let it go, and that seed began to germinate. He failed to obey God completely in the matter of the Amalekites, and then as time went on, it began to grow even more. Its roots sunk deep down into Saul's heart, and its branches grew tall and strong and and spread out in his life, and before long, Saul was trying to murder God's anointed king, David over and over again. And finally, he reaches a point where the rebellion that was the same as witchcraft becomes rebellion that actually seeks out witchcraft. And finally, Samuel's able to say to him, look, this sin that started out so small, it's gone to seed and it's grown and it's taken over your entire heart and your entire life and now the fruit is ready to appear. And what you've been sowing for your entire life, you're about to reap. And Saul loses everything. I mean, everything. He loses his royal status, the status of his family. The kingdom is torn from him like tearing a garment. His family is destroyed. All in one day, Saul is going to die, and three of his sons are going to die, including the crown prince, Jonathan. Saul's sin harms the people of God. How many Israelites, wives, and children are going to be out looking across the field waiting for their soldier to come home, and he doesn't come home. He was killed in battle with the Philistines, and it's all because of Saul's sin. Saul forfeits his honor. As we'll see in a couple weeks, he dies like a coward, and his body is hanged from a city wall like a lowly criminal. He loses his life. And what is the most sobering reality of this text? 
is that Saul is completely and totally separated from God. You see what he does. Not repentance. I mean, the one moment when you would think, okay, man, (laughs) it's time to humble yourself. It's time to be broken before the Lord. That's not what he does. He just lies there in despair. Utter hopelessness. And folks, I wish I could tell you this morning that Saul's story is a story of redemption and renewal. I love telling stories like that. The prodigal son, uh, the story of Peter, the story of Paul, my story. But that's not Saul's story. I fear that all too often in our churches we preach a message of sappy and sentimental hope that leaves out, that edits away the reality that for some people who have chance after chance after chance after chance to repent, they choose not to do that and the end is judgment. God is not going to be mocked. He is a God of wrath toward rebellion. He is utterly going to destroy all those who reject his offer of mercy and forgiveness. You know what Proverbs 10.24 says? It says, what the wicked dreads will come upon him. What the wicked dreads will come upon him. That is what Saul most fears. What taunts and terrorizes him in the middle of the night is the very thing that comes upon him. And the reason why is because he refuses to turn back. He refuses to repent. It didn't have to be this way. But for Saul and for many millions it is this way. Millions of souls separated from God, crushed under the weight of judgment, racked with regret, knowing that they could have turned. And they didn't. Folks, one of the main takeaways from this text is the reminder that judgment is real. It's certain. Jesus warns his listeners. They had all heard about the time just a year or two before when the governor of the region, Pilate, had killed a bunch of the Jewish men and and their blood mingled with the blood of the sacrifices and everybody thought that was kind of spooky and strange and, and, and that these men must have been worse sinners than everybody else because that happened and Jesus says to them, no, 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 they weren't worse sinners than all of, us, than all of you because that happened. If you don't repent, it's, it's going to happen to you as well. They all remembered a time when a tower, a water tower, collapsed and fell on 18 people and they all died and they were tempted to think, well, man, those people must sure have been bad, evil, wicked sinners, not like me. And Jesus, his warning was simple. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Here's my point. It would be a huge mistake for us to look at somebody like Saul and say, well, that guy was really bad, as if to say, I'm glad I'm not like him. That wouldn't happen to me. You might have had a favorable start, but Saul had an even more favorable start. And there's going to come a time very soon when it won't matter what everybody thinks of you. It won't matter how much money you made. It won't matter the the education that you have. It won't matter uh, what you look like. It won't matter whether your name was on a membership roll. The only thing that's going to matter is whether you had Christ. And and I wonder if you're here this morning and, and if you don't have Christ and you've been offered chance after chance to turn from sin and believe in Jesus, but you've pushed back. You said, no. Not today. Friend, you need to stop worrying 
about what everybody else is going to think about you and just come to Christ. Judgment is real. God is not mocked, but he extends an offer of forgiveness to anybody who believes in the Lord Jesus. You say, what do I have to do? Nothing. Just call out to him and say, I need to be saved. You don't have to bring anything to him except the need that you have. Say, well, maybe another day. Friend, just keep in mind, you might not have another day. In fact, I would say this, not to be unkind, but this assumption that I'm going to have another day that I can decide later, that's pride. You're saying, God, you owe me another chance. He doesn't owe you a thing. Turn to him today. You say, well, I'll try to do that, but that's the problem. You're trying. You don't need to try. God has already done the work. You're relying on yourself, on your efforts. Lay all of that aside and just come to Christ today. Don't be like Saul. Don't run away from God until it's too late. Turn around and be broken before him today. Would you pray with me now? God, we want to come before you and just spend a moment in reverence and awe. You are a consuming fire. We don't like to think about that. We want you to just like us for who we are and accept us with our sin and Sometimes I fear, Lord, that we've, we've conceived of you in our mind in a way that is just not in accordance with the way that you've revealed yourself. You are holy, God. And we have no right to come before you and expect your mercy. We can only claim it because you've said that that is who you are. Lord, I just want to pray for anyone today in this room, anyone listening to the sound of my voice, who has time after time been saying, no, not today. No, I think I'll rely on something else or somebody else. I pray that you would lay it on their heart by the power of your spirit to humble themselves, be broken before you and say, I need Christ. I need Christ today. Father, I pray that you would make us broken people and that you would make us broken over our sin and over the sin of our world and over the need of a Savior. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.